Um, so like um, Ken mentioned, we're going to begin the first part of this three-part series, right? Hope for the hypocrite. And we're going to go through Matthew chapter 23. This morning, I'm only going to be tackling the first 12 verses. Okay, and, we have to, and we'll come and try to see what Jesus has to say about the heart of the gospel from these 12 verses. Um, but before we get into the passage, I think maybe let's just set up the whole scene first. We have two main <coughs> characters in this passage, right? We have Jesus talking to the crowds and his disciples, and then the villains, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. Can you just push up your Okay. Is that better? Yes? Uh, Hazel, can you hear me at the back? Well, is it okay? Clear? All right. So, who are the scribes and the Pharisees? In the first century New Testament world, the scribes were those who were trained in reading and writing. In Jewish society, they were the leaders of the community who could have been priests from the a family of Levites, or even just a regular person who studied and interpreted religious law. In a society where only about 10% of the adults could read, the scribes occupied important positions within the community. In the New Testament writings, the scribes were often associated with the Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but many of them were. The Pharisees were one of four religious groups among the Jewish people. Of the four groups, the Pharisees were the ones most highly regarded by the masses, and their teachings the most widely accepted. People looked to them to have a say on anything related to Jewish faith, anywhere from how to pray or how to engage in religious rites, and what exactly it meant to properly worship God. And scholars note that the Pharisees often lived simply they were not prone to luxury, like, for example, the Sadducees who were a part of the elite. But even though they weren't part of the elite, they had enough that they had time to study. So they would most likely have been mid-level bureaucrats, judges, and educators. In a society where religion wasn't compartmentalized like it is for us today, their knowledge of the Torah, which is the laws of Moses handed, which is the laws of God handed down to Moses, afforded them influence in government and the community. So on paper, at least, it seems that the Pharisees are religious leaders worthy of admiration because they have dedicated their lives to teach people about God's laws. Many in the first century Greco-Roman world did, in fact, admire them for their devotion and their expertise of the law. Why then are they portrayed as such bad guys? Why does Matthew spend a whole chapter detailing Jesus' harsh criticism against them that one would be hard-pressed to find any redeeming qualities? Why such a one-sided portrayal? After all, the Pharisees could not have been all bad. Some Pharisees, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, for example, the one who gave his burial plot for Jesus, may well have been followers of Jesus. This caricature picture of the Pharisees begins to make sense when we consider that the Gospel of Matthew was written for a largely Jewish audience. Matthew is undeniably the most Jewish of all the Gospel books. So as spiritual leaders who regularly handled and studied the scrolls containing the laws and commandments by, given by God, the Pharisees have direct access to the very revelation of God 
And remember, in the society, only 10% could read, right? So it, they basically controlled it. But instead of leading the people faithfully, the Pharisees, Jesus says, have hearts that are far from God and are nothing but blind guides, a brood of vipers. They look and sound faithful, but their values, what mattered most to them, was misaligned from the heart of God. That's why we see in the Gospel of Matthew that they are constantly in conflict with Jesus. They follow Jesus around, try to test him, try to trap him in his words with the goal of discrediting Jesus' obvious authority. At the end of chapter 22, Matthew showed us how Jesus thoroughly confounded the Pharisees' attempts to discredit him, such that the very end of that verse says, no one dared to ask him any more questions after that. If the Gospel of Matthew were a TV show, this moment would be where the cliffhanger ending comes. At this moment, you would hear suspenseful music swelling, okay? Imagine it, hear it. And then there would be the freeze frame. On one side, Jesus. On the other side, the villains, the Pharisees. As the music swells, the show stops, and you're forced to ask the question, who will win this battle, the hero, in this case, Jesus, or the villains, in this case, the Pharisees. Immediately after this cliffhanger scene, we locate our passage, Matthew 23, where we now see Jesus speaking to crowds and his disciples. Here we find Jesus, as Ken said, using some of the strongest language of condemnation found in the Bible. And he gives a long list of sins perpetrated by the Pharisees. Jesus' condemnation is so powerful that Jesus' audience, Matthew's readers, and us are left with no room for misinterpreting Jesus' utter contempt for the Pharisees. So now let's read Matthew 23, verse 1 to 12 together, and let's look more closely at this, these words. How did the Pharisees get the heart of the matter so wrongly? Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The fundamental charge Jesus lays against the Pharisees is that they do not practice what they preach. They are hypocrites. They outwardly look devoted. They outwardly look faithful. They seem like they are pure, but their hearts have been corrupted by pride and self-absorption. When we read such a passage, it's easy for us as readers 
to dismiss the Pharisees because their condemnation is so thorough and so powerful, we would naturally fall into this us versus them mentality. The Pharisees are the bad guys over there. They're evil, vile, the baddest of all villains. We are over here, separate and distinct from them. I mean, we may not be perfect, but we can never be that bad, right? Ken laughs a lot. <laughs> That's, right? But ask the question, right? We can, most of us would think that way when you read something like this. I can never be that bad. The Pharisees are held up in this passage as the ultimate hypocrite, but they are being held up for us as a mirror for us to see. Are they the only hypocrites? Are we really that different from them? Are Jesus' words meant just for them? What about us? Hebrews 4 verse 12 states, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This passage is meant to do just that, to pierce into our very depths and lay bare for us what's buried deep in our hearts, to show us what really occupies first place, contrary to what we say or think. Jesus is saying in this passage, look, look deeply into your hearts. Be honest. What's in there? How you've been living shows what really matters to you. Fundamentally, that's what hypocrisy is, isn't it? That what we say doesn't line up with what we love and what we do. In what ways have we deluded ourselves into thinking that we are right with God when our hearts and our actions say otherwise? In what ways are we also under the sway of pride and self-absorption? What's the extent of our own hypocrisy? So as we look at the charges against the Pharisees, keep these questions in mind. Remember that in condemning the Pharisees, Jesus is holding up a mirror for us to lay bare our hearts. So the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees show up in a number of ways. The first one is in verse 4. Okay, It states, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Various scholars suggest that the heavy burden Jesus is talking about here refers to the oral tradition, or, as the Pharisees called them, the tradition of the elders. The law of Moses, as revealed in Mount Sinai, included many rules and commandments. They were meant to distinguish the people of God from the others around them. You'd find, a lot, you'd find most of these rules and commandments in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But as many of you who have read Leviticus and Deuteronomy will agree to, these rules and commandments are not always self-explanatory. There's a need to figure out meaning and application. And so in their desire to help God's people obey God's laws, the Pharisees developed a complementary oral law to be used alongside the written law, something kind of like cliff notes. You know, like when people don't like to read the novels, they just pick up the cliff notes and it gives you a summary. Some people even write papers just based on cliff notes. So the oral law is kind of like cliff notes to the written law. Over time, this tradition of the elders came to be regarded by the Pharisees to have the same authority as the written Torah, the written law. 
That meant for the, that for the Pharisees, the Jewish people had to obey both the written law and the tradition of the elders. But obeying the written law, the laws of Moses, was difficult enough. The additional burden of the tradition of the elders, with all its numerous stipulations, made the burden much, much heavier, harder to bear, ultimately weighing the people down. I think that there is a picture next. Yes. Okay, it's kind of like this image, you know, where the burden is so heavy, so large, that your shoulders and your very body threaten to buckle under the weight, under the weight of all the rules. Contrast this to Jesus' words in Matthew 11, verse 30. There, Jesus invited all who labor and are heavy laden to find rest in him, for he promised that his yoke is easy, his burden light. It's a sharp contrast, isn't it? Jesus offers rest, while the scribes and the Pharisees offer never-ending striving and crushing labor. The main hypocrisy of the Pharisees, however, is not that they insisted on the obedience to the tradition of the elders. The main hypocrisy in this charge is that they pretended to care about the spiritual welfare of the people while being unwilling to revisit these extra rules, these extra tradition of the elders, and consider how to make the burden more manageable. The Pharisees pretended to care while their actions showed that they lacked compassion and really did not care. What they cared most about was the system, the religious institution that must have their rules so that they can maintain authority and status within the community. They claimed to serve God, but in reality, they served themselves and did all they could to maintain the system, maintain their position, maintain their privileges within the system. They claimed to care, but their actions showed they couldn't care less. I work at a school with some you know, children sometimes in the spectrum, sometimes children that have challenges. And you know, like I, I go, I've gone through some training and they say that we often have to echo the feelings of children, right? When they say, I'm so frustrated. Oh, I hear you're so frustrated. That must be so hard, right? And so I try my best and I do these things, right? But sometimes a child will do, do the same thing. It's the third term, right? It's already almost May. He's done the same thing since September. <laughs> and so by like, you know, like uh, the, the first Monday, like if I start, uh, you know, like January, I was still very patient. But by now I go like, I can already hear it coming, right? The, 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 the complaint is coming. He hasn't said it. I can already know exactly what the child is going to say. And so I say, yeah, I know it's hard, but you know, let's get going. There's one particular child that misses her mom a lot. So she would come to me just at the beginning, says, I miss my mommy. And I said, I know, I know. Let's look at the schedule, how many more stations, and then you'll see your mommy at the end, so we'll count it. And then she'll go. And then, I mean, sometimes it takes like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, she'll come back again, I miss my mommy, and I'll, I'll repeat the same thing. By the fifth time she comes back, I go like, I want to throw this child out of the window. <laughs> But you know, I need to show that I care, right? So I say the words, but deep inside, I no longer mean it, right? And so, you know, I mean, it's hypocritical, it is. And it's, it's natural though, it's, it's human of us to do that. But Jesus is saying that that's not enough, right? If we want to care, we need to really care, not just at the first complaint, the second complaint, the third complaint, at the 20th, the 30th, 50th complaint, we should still care, right? 
And so our hearts need to be changed, right? What is hypocrisy? Saying that we care, but not really showing that we care. How often do we likewise fall into this kind of hypocrisy? How often do we hold on to our man-made rules so tightly that we can't even think to revise it or scrap it if it no longer makes sense? How often do we say that we care only to show in our actions that we don't in fact care? There's a reason we have a saying that actions speak louder than words. Do our actions match our words? Another way the Pharisees um, engage in hypocrisy concerned, as verse 5 puts it, their desire to do all their deeds to be seen by others. The Pharisees were preoccupied with outward appearances. One of the ways they showed this was through the way they wore phylacteries and fringes. Uh, phylacteries and fringes are, or tassels are both prescribed in Deuteronomy as something all Jewish men were to wear. The phylactery is a small leather box which contains the text of the Shema, the central affirmation of the Jews from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 that declares there's no other God but God. So Jewish men wear this box, one on the forehead, so you see that little black thing on his head, and then another one on the arm. You see the rope, and then there's his shirt there is a little bit, hides it, but there's another one in his arm. And then fringes or tassels are those like longish things you see on the bottom of that white shawl. Um, Deuteronomy 2 verse 12 prescribed it to be so sewn into the four corners of ancient garments back when clothing was just one big piece of rectangular cloth. Both items of clothing were meant to be a physical reminder of God and the need to follow the law daily. So there was no problem with the wearing of phylacteries and fringes or tassels in and of itself. The problem was that the Pharisees wanted to stand out among the people. So what they did was they made their phylacteries broader, bigger, so bigger than those boxes, and then their tassels were longer. So if you, if you were in a group of Jewish men in, the mor in morning prayer, everybody was wearing these, you looked around, you would see the one who had the bigger, bigger boxes and the ones that had the longer tassels. They wanted people to notice them. They wanted people to look at them, to admire them for their piety and their religios religiosity. Um, they wanted people to think that they were very godly. That's why Jesus also denounces their love for the places or seats of honor at feasts. The best seats in the synagogue, being greeted in the marketplaces, being called rabbi. These practices all served to solidify their status within the community, made them feel important, valued, honored. But that status, that self-importance of the Pharisees, is predicated on the lifting up of one's self at the expense of others. It is a self-absorption that keeps our eyes on ourselves and blinds us from seeing the needs other than our own. It encourages us to compare ourselves to others, look around, and try to figure out how we can lift ourselves up and above over the others. In contrast, Jesus tells his disciples that there are, no, there are to be no levels among them. Verses 8 to 10 says that there, are, there should be no one to be called rabbi or teacher or father because they are all equal in status before God. What Jesus is forbidding is the use of official titles, not 
um, the acknowledgement of differences in gifting. During the time of Jesus, the term rabbi was already in use. The term sprang up from the grassroots. People started calling um, anybody who taught the law rabbi, but it was a very loose term. Later, during the time of the Gospel of Matthew, the rabbi title was becoming more official and institutionalized. So now there were certain qualifications that went along with it, certain restrictions. So now only certain experts of the law can use the title rabbi. It became an official title. Um, it became a capital R rabbi instead of just anybody can use it. If you can think of it kind of like someone today that has a PhD. They can use doctor or the letters behind their name because they've gotten the expertise in that field or medical doctors. Such titles serve to elevate certain people compared to others. So when you combine these titles with a practice of giving these members places of honor and the best seats, that practice of positional elevation becomes institutionalized and internalized. Our practices shape us. As embodied people, our actions cannot help but shape us. What we do, how we address people, how we treat people, impacts how we view things. So if we keep using official titles and these giving people special things, um, it's easy for us to unconsciously begin to assign higher value or importance to those with the titles. Those people are to be respected and admired. Those people are, are, are models. Those people have it all together. That's where it kind of goes awry. Our practices shape us. They cannot help but affect the way we think and live. Jesus knows this. That's why he lists such a long list of wrongs in this passage. And that's why this passage ends with the verses 11 to 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here, Jesus repeats a key teaching he has been trying to model as well as teach his disciples since the beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God is not about greatness. It's about service. Service to God and service to God's people and his creation. Greatness, Jesus says, is not what we should strive for. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What we should focus on is humility. The true disciple of Jesus will be filled with humility, not arrogance. The true disciple of Jesus, like his master, is looking to serve, not to be served. In the original Greek of the New Testament, the Greek word for humble has the idea of bringing low, particularly in terms of ranking below others who are to be honored. The way verse 12 is phrased is interesting because it says, whoever humbles himself. The sense there that the humbling is chosen intentionally, that true disciples of Jesus are to humble themselves on purpose. It doesn't mean that we are not aware of our own strengths and accomplishments, but to humble oneself means one chooses to be lower than others on purpose despite our talents, despite our abilities, despite our position. That's interesting to me 
Because I often think of humility, I don't know how you think about it, but I've often thought of it as a personality trait. That some people are born with a more humble personality, and other people are born with a more arrogant personality. In that kind of thinking, we're not necessarily at fault, whether we lean more towards humility or we lean more towards arrogance. But verse 12 tells us that we can choose to humble ourselves and that it is more of a virtue that can be cultivated. Consider this illustration by an Austrian graphic artist. This man is taking his hat off to his shadow, which I think can stand for the inner self. But notice that the shadow is smaller than you. Oftentimes, if you go outside to, and there's a sun and you stand, your shadow is normally bigger than you, right? I think that's our natural inclination, to make ourselves bigger, right? But Jesus says we need to view ourselves as smaller, intentionally, to choose that. There's nothing wrong with that. He says, in fact, that is a good thing. I found this illustration in a New York Times article titled, ironically, Be Humble and Proudly psychologists say. <laughs> I don't think those two go together, but that was the title. The article goes on to define humility. It's a good definition, so I'm going to read it to you. I'm sorry, I forgot to make a slide for it, so you have to listen carefully to this one, okay? Humility is the ability to accurately acknowledge one's limitations and abilities and an interpersonal stance that is other-oriented rather than self-focused. I'll repeat that again because it's important. Humility is the ability to accurately acknowledge one's limitations and abilities and an interpersonal stance that is other-oriented rather than self-focused. That's the choice Jesus is asking us to make, that we choose to lower ourselves and to look outward instead of inward. Jesus asks us to look toward God and to look toward his creation and his people, toward the world. The opposite of humility is arrogance or conceit. That's the one who exalts himself, who is preoccupied with greatness for oneself. What awaits that kind of person is a forced humbling in the end. They will ultimately be brought low by God. Why? Because arrogance leads to prideful self-exaltation self at the expense of others. It's inward focused, preoccupied with matters of the self. Humility is fundamentally a way of being, a way of viewing ourselves, a way of viewing the world. It's an inner stance that requires we see ourselves as lower than God, that God is the one who is in charge and we are merely under him. It's not about being a doormat, which some people would argue. It's not about letting people walk all over us. But it is about making a conscious choice to make ourselves lower, to look outward, to focus on service for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's about seeking God's approval and his pronouncement at the end of, well done, my good and faithful servant. Living with an eye towards cultivating humility is very different from the celebrated life of the times we live in. In an age where social media is central, the outward self, appearances, matter a lot. 
thousands spend lots and lots of time cultivating the Instagram-worthy life. Everywhere you go now, there's like, you know, props on display. You can take pictures so you can put it on Instagram, right? It never, that was never the case many years ago. Influencers are a job now. It never used to be. You know, people make money, sometimes lots of it, simply by posting on social media what they're wearing, what they're eating, what they're using, so other people could buy the same things. We live in a time saturated with the need to keep up appearances. Our definition of success is usually quite outward, right? Having the right things, the right house, the right car, the right bag, the right phone. Everything that can be seen on the outside, we take so much care to cultivate. But anyone who spent any time on social media will know also the, the allure of the thumbs up and the likes. I used, I mean, I, when it first all started, I used to post a lot too. And then, you know, when you post a picture, all my friends would start liking it, liking it. So and then every day, every day I would check it. Not every day, actually, sometimes every hour I check how many likes now, how many likes now, how many likes now. You know? And I found that it was not healthy for my soul. Because then you go like, oh, nobody liked this picture. I wonder why. So that's the reason I never post anything anymore. I mean, I think Dwight never does either. I mean, it used to be fun, right? Until I realized all these friends I had didn't really want to respond when I sent them a message. They were just friends online, but they weren't really friends. So, you know, it's all outward. Um, you know, we know that these approval, these likes are not real approval, but we crave them anyway. We get sucked into it. So if you engage in social media of whatever kind, do you ever ask yourself why you do what you do on it? Whether that's posting, scrolling, trolling, whatever it is. How does your social presence reveal the state of what truly matters to you? Are we becoming like the Pharisees, having a preoccupation with outward appearances, while at the same time neglecting the weightier matters of the heart, which are love, mercy, and service? Does your heart align with the heart of God? Jesus reminds us this morning that all this focus on the outer self takes our attention away from what really matters, that we should be humbling ourselves and living in service to God and of his creation. Last Sunday, our small group had the opportunity to celebrate Gwen's birthday. So our small group meets weekly after service at the Good Shepherd Room. So as we were getting together, everybody, all the kids knew that it was Gwen's birthday and we were having a special celebration. So there was a table set up and the kids said, oh, this is going to be our table. And Derek sits down and said, oh, I'm going to save this special seat at the end, the one that's empty over there. This is going to be Gwen's special seat, Gwen's special chair, a seat of honor. That was the term he used, a seat of honor for Gwen's birthday. Um, you know, Gwen, Gwen wasn't at the room by the time I took this picture, but he came, she came in and then she happily sat and was um, very pleased that she got a special seat. And then all the other kids were also really happy to celebrate with her and we had a great time. When I saw them sit on this chair, when I heard Derek say, special seat of honor, my mind immediately went to this passage because I had been mulling it over for quite some time, right? And so I was thinking about it and go like, it's interesting that even young children have this notion that we need to have special seats for certain people, right? And so I thought, should I have banned this special seat? <laughs> Am I encouraging pharisaical behavior here? <laughs> and so I stopped and I go, like, no, 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 you will be happy to know that I don't think I was encouraging any Pharisees at that time. The kids sat, you know why? Because the kids, the kids sat around the table as equals. 
even though there was distinction because there was a special event. They sat around as friends. Not that Gwen was better than anyone else, right? It was just a seat for a special occasion. The problem, as I mentioned with special seats, is that it often leads to the corresponding ranking of people according to status. That is what's wrong. The people who sit in those seats are better, the letters behind their name more important than others. And those that do not occupy those seats or have, don't have those special titles are less worthy, less valuable than those who do. Those who belong to the kingdom of God, Jesus says, are all valuable. Everyone is of equal worth. There is none that is above anyone else, leaders included. But I wonder if we truly believe that. In what ways do I, do you, rank people according to perceived value and importance? Do you find yourself, for example, deferring to someone just because of their profession or their title? Do you find yourself saying no to certain things because you don't think you're worth it? What accounts for your assigning of worth? Jesus emphasizes the need for humility precisely to counter this tendency to rank and compare ourselves to each other. If we choose to look outward toward God and towards the, word, the world and focus on how we can serve God and each other, then the focus turns away from ranking, turns away from one-upping, and instead focuses on how we can serve and help one another. Then we can really live out the greatest commandment, to love God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. On that commandment, the whole law of Moses hangs. Who will be exalted? The one who chooses to humble himself. The one who chooses to make him or herself low so that he can serve God and others in the community of brothers and sisters, all equal in, the worth, in worth in the eyes of God. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who will be doing the exalting? God. There's no need to toot our own horns. God sees us, and God knows us. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees are held up in this passage as the ultimate hypocrites. But they are being held up for us as a mirror for us to see. Are they the only hypocrites? Are we really that different from them? Are Jesus' words meant just for them? What about us? <laughs>